Welcome to the Fallon Forum. This is Ed Fallon, your host, broadcasting live from La Reina, 1260 AM and 96.5 FM in Des Moines, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. Uh, later in the program, we'll be talking about the energy efficiency bill. We'll be talking with Maria Filippone about the uh, conflict between Israel and, and Palestine. We'll uh, talk with uh, Joseph Glazebrook about Stormy Daniels and also about marriage equality. And we'll give you an update on the legislation that uh, the pipeline company wants to try to legitimize itself as critical infrastructure. But first, I want to welcome Patty McKee to the program. Uh, Patty, welcome to the show. I'm glad to be here. Patty is with the uh, Catholic Peace Ministry, and uh, they've got an event coming up that's going to be featuring um, a family that has done amazing work locally, but also nationally. And maybe uh, if folks listening elsewhere in the country, you may well have heard of a book called This is an Uprising by Paul and Mark Engler. Uh, that book will be that book is, uh, again, uh, one of the milestones that these uh, this family has achieved, among all sorts of other great work. But uh, a bit first about the Dingman Dinner, because folks outside of central Iowa might not know what the name Dingman means, but to us here it means an awful lot, because Bishop Dingman was an icon of, uh, of uh, faith in action. Yes, Bishop Dingman um, was the bishop of the Des Moines Diocese, and he was definitely a Vatican II um, bishop and was very liberal and actually helped start the Catholic Peace Ministry, um, which focuses on peace and justice issues. Um, it's Our focus has been on, it started out on the, war, the wars in Central America, but now focusing on things like North Korea and um, the use of drones in the drone base here in Des Moines. Um, and just many other issues as we have time for. And Bishop Damon was uh, bishop back in the 80s. I mean, I met him when I first moved to Des Moines. It was I, I was uh, amazed, actually, because I ran into him at an airport, at the Des Moines airport. And uh, we talked for all of a minute. He says, you know, you should join me for breakfast. And I could not believe that a bishop has just invited me to join him for breakfast. I thought, wow, what an honor. I realized he invites everybody to join him for breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, on top of that, I ended up... Uh, forgetting <laughs> I overslept and that was the day that I ended up uh, getting a calendar <laughs> instead of just a notepad but he was an amazing man and so this uh, this um, event has happened for now what 20 plus years 23 years 23 this years. is our 23rd year and every year we honor somebody who has been active in peace and justice work either locally or on the national basis um, and, and it's also a time for our members and other people in the community who work on peace and justice issues to come together for a social time. And, and then we do the award after the social time. And, and this year's award uh, to a family from Des Moines, but who have achieved some national recognition through all sorts of good work, uh, the Engler family, uh, Joan Engler and her three sons, uh, Mark, Francis, and Paul. And, and Paul and Mark uh, are um, well, well acquainted to a lot of us, again, not just in central Iowa, but around the country, because of an amazing book they wrote a couple of years ago called This is an Uprising. Mm -hmm. And it's, uh, it's, it's, like a, it's like a how to on, on the, the steps you need to take to effectively organize a movement, whether it's a small movement about a local issue or a big national campaign, they, they really nail it. Yes, they do. And that book also gives you the history of some movements in this country and around the world um, and and looking at 
things that have gone well and things that haven't gone well in those um, movements. Yeah. And um, and then kind of a compilation of that book, uh, Mark and Sophie Lassoff have written a resistance guide. And um, it is it's kind of a more concise uh, statement of what was in this is an uprising but if you want the history read this is the uprising and if you want the cliff notes i guess you read resistance good <laughs> mm-hmm. but uh the uh, you know mark francis uh paul they're they're not merely uh interested in thinking deeply about what's involved in social change they they live it they do it and they've done uh, some amazing work too they've done a lot of work around immigration around uh around working workers rights mm-hmm. um and around healthcare reform as well. Mm-hmm. And again, I think I, you know, I just I think it's great that they're being recognized because this book um, is I, one of my pet peeves is that people tend to think that organizing is something anybody can do, you know. And I like say, well, you know, if I if I want if I have a a, a toilet that is clogged or not clogged, but that where the plumbing is askew, I don't try to do that myself. <laughs> hire a plumber. You know, if I want if I want piano lessons, if somebody wants piano lessons, I recommend a piano teacher, not a cello player. You know, if you want an organizer, if you want something organized that's going to be effective and meaningful and have long, you know, long-lasting impact, you got to have an organizer do it. Somebody who has some natural ability, some background, some experience. And uh, for those who have that natural ability, this is a great way to take those uh, natural skills and get them Get them to the point where you can effectively move social change forward. Mm-hmm. Well, and Paul and Mark and Francis, they they had good teachers. Um, their parents were involved in issues back in the 60s. Yeah. Um, their father was in, involved with prison reform in um, and. Um, also worked to st- with Governor Hughes to stop the to the death penalty in Iowa in '65, mm. mm-hmm. um, and then once Joan and Cy moved to Des Moines, then they got involved in housing issues, especially for refugees, uh, to f- so that refugees in the Des Moines area would have an affordable place to live. Yeah. Um, Interesting sidebar there is uh, when I bought the only home I've ever owned, uh, 1987, Cy was my realtor. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, and he also helped the Des Moines Catholic Worker buy right, their houses sure. and, and also Bishop Dingman. Yeah. Um, the house that Bishop Dingman lived in was... Uh, That's right, because Bishop Dingman, I mean, what an amazing man Bishop Dingman was, uh, you know, comparable to uh, Bishop uh, Gumbleton and... Um, and I, I think Oscar Romero and, and lots of other key historical Catholic figures who, in our modern time, have done amazing work in the face of lots of adversity within the church itself and outside of it. But Bishop Dingman, uh, you know, the bishops, the bishops in Des Moines used to live in a mansion. Bishop Dingman somehow thought that might not be consistent with his thought, his his, his um, impression of Christianity, and he sold the mansion. And moved to a modest apartment in a housing complex in the inner city. Mm-hmm. It was uh, it was an incredible decision mm-hmm. that probably subsequent bishops may may regret <laughs> because now they don't get yes. a mansion. But it made so much sense, and it was so consistent with the way he he looked at life and the way he saw his ministry as a bishop. So so the uh, the Dingman dinner, the Dingman Peace Award itself, 
is on April 7th, I believe? Yes, it is. And it starts at 6 p.m. And it's at Holy Trinity Catholic Church in Des Moines, which is on 2926 Beaver Avenue. And tickets are $40. Yeah. Okay. And those go towards supporting the work of Catholic Peace Ministry. And you can reserve a ticket by going to our, uh, by sending an email to catholicpeaceministry.org. Yeah. Or, or, excuse me, catholicpeaceministry at gmail.com. All right. Catholicpeaceministry at gmail.com if you want to reserve a ticket to the annual Dingman Peace Award. And again, this year, uh, Mark and Paul Engler, uh, Francis Engler, Joan Engler, the whole Engler family will be honored as the recipients of the award. Well-deserved. And again, if you haven't read This is an Uprising or the Resistance Guide or both, it's something you ought to put on your reading list. It is... Uh, on the top of my reading list to finish uh, this book. Uh, finishing books is a challenge for me once in a while. <laughs> anyway, it's going to happen, I tell you. Later in the program, Matt Olaf joining us to talk about the uh, energy efficiency bill that is, uh, well, possibly languishing at the Iowa legislature, and that would not be a bad thing, according to a lot of people. Uh, we'll also talk with uh, Attorney Joseph Glazebrook about Stormy Daniels. Uh, we'll give you an update on the legal challenges and uh, and the progress being made uh, regarding marriage equality. And we'll give you an update on the the bill that the uh, Dakota Access Pipeline wants regarding redefining critical infrastructure. But first, I'm really delighted to have Maria Filippone in the studio with Thank me. Thank you. Uh, you, um, you have visited Israel and Gaza a couple times. Three times. Three times. Yes. A couple yes. plus one. Yes. And... Um, it seems like we haven't. I mean, it's a particularly challenging time for for folks concerned about what's going on in Gaza and the West Bank with the direction that President Trump and his administration are taking. Uh, and well, your your most recent trip has been in the, within the last year, I believe. Yes, in July. Yeah. <clears throat> so you you went there during the Trump time, Trump's time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What what have you been seeing in terms of changes and and movement? Uh, well, in Gaza, the situation just keeps deteriorating. The U.N. has now declared Gaza as effectively unlivable. Um, the U.N. has done that? The U.N., yes. Since, since April of last year, um, the Palestinian Authority and Israel um, decreased uh, electricity to Gaza. They only usually got 8 to 10 hours a day, but to put pressure on Hamas to um, Get hand over power, they decreased it to two to four hours a day. And, and that, so that they've been. The people, not, well, everybody, yeah, yeah. everything. You know, it affects um, cleaning uh, the water, it affects uh, hospitals, it affects food, it affects everything you can imagine. Um, and so the, the Gazans have been dealing with that um, since, well, they've been living under siege for 10 years. Um, but dealing with that since last April, where it got critically low, um, and October 3rd of 2017, last um, fall, Hamas unconditionally handed over power to Fatah, to, um, and nothing changed. It was under the hopes of um, in improving the lives for um, Gazans, giving them clean water, more electricity, some freedom of movement, mm. um, and nothing has changed. Yeah. So... So, um, and you, you've tried to establish some dialogue with the with the Jewish community in Des Moines, and been kind of pushed aside. Now, there's, there's sudden, there's, there seems to be no interest in talking about this with you. Um, there is. People care. Okay. Uh, when I when I talk, the Des Moines Jewish Federation says no. He won't talk. 
Um, he has his right. I would, you know, I, I when I talk about this issue, I, I would love to first state, you know, I believe Israelis have a right to live in peace and freedom. And I also think Palestinians have that right too, but but the Palestinian narrative seems to be lost in this country. Yeah, and and, so. and, and why is that? Why is that so hard for people to grasp? Well, I don't know. What do you think? Uh, money. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. I, just to give um, put a word to it. We we've only had like the one Zionist perspective on this issue for the past seventy years, and there's another perspective about the indigenous people who have been forced from their lands. And those who have not been forced from the land who are still there are still forced to live as second-class citizens or even worse than that. Palestinians, especially in the West Bank, live under uh, military law, and Israelis live under civilian law. So that's a huge yeah, difference. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, yeah, no, I, I, I think that it's changing in this country some, slowly, um, but it's changing. People are recognizing um, that, you know, wait, it's been yeah. pretty one-sided. But, but un under the Trump administration, the change has been all in the wrong direction. Oh, certainly. <laughs> so do you think that's helped fuel a backlash toward the right direction among the general population? Uh, perhaps. I don't know. I hope so. Yeah. I hope I hope that um, people just say, oh, no, we want everybody to live in peace. Um, I don't pretend to know the answer um, to it, two-state solution, one-state solution, whatever, because I think when we talk about it here in the West, we tend to impose our belief systems on it, mm. and when we don't really fully understand everything, the history, certainly the history, and everything, you know, all the reality, the current reality. So I think we need to bring more Palestinian voices to the table. Yeah, and... Um that that's important, but mm -hmm. uh, if 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 the uh, if uh, the Jewish community refuses to sit at that table, that's um, that's unfortunate. It's not in well. I want to. I also want to tell you there are many many brave Jewish voices mm. in Israel and in the U.S. who are fighting for Palestinian rights. Okay. Um, one of them you have a chance to come see, April twelfth, a month from today, Miko Peled. Mm. Um, he is truly a remarkable human being. Um, he grew up in Israel, the son of a, a famous general, um, and he and his father, his father in his father's late end of life, you know, worked really hard to um, for Palestinian rights after he saw everything. And Migo's doing the same thing, carrying the torch. Um, it's Thursday, April 12th at 7 p.m. at the State Historical Museum here yeah. um, on 600 and East Locust. Who's, uh, who's sponsoring the... Uh, the uh, MEPEC, Middle East Peace Education Coalition. I'm on the board of that coalition. Yeah. Um, so it, we're delighted to bring him. He's been all over the world sharing his story. Will the uh, Jewish Federation of Des Moines be co-sponsoring the event? Oh, no. <laughs> but, but they, I would, they were I would love it if they yeah, could come yeah. and, and listen to him. Um, also, there's Rabbi Brant Rosen, who started the first non-Zionist synagogue in the Chicago area. Um, he works for AFSC. There's so many Jewish voices who are, are advocating, saying this is not sustainable for for Jewish Israelis, and certainly not for Palestinians. We need to, you know, give them the same rights that we well, have I mean, in the, the land. The, the UN declaration about the unlivability of, of, of Gaza, surely that must count for a lot in terms of the global conversation about this. I, I would maybe, hope so. Maybe and not every, with the Trump well, in every other country in the world, it counts. In Gaza, when yeah. you arrive in Gaza, they have signs up 
they're they try you know they want to be they have pride they want they want to have dignity they're signs saying let's the original um report came out from the UN in 2012 saying if things continue Gaza will be uninhabitable by 2020 well that's only accelerated since the 2014 yeah. war yeah. and because of the siege and everything yeah. um and now, so anyways there's a sign when you first enter Gaza saying let's make Gaza livable yeah. Now, now, what about the, uh, again, the, uh, we, we invited the, the head of the uh, Des Moines Jewish Federation mm -hmm. to join us for this conversation, and he said no because you're basically, um, you know, just fronting for Hamas. How do you I'm, respond to that? <laughs> I'm certainly not fronting for Hamas, um, and I'm not abetting terrorism, and I'm not, um, do, I'm, I'm speaking for the voices in Gaza, the people, the just regular people I met who are suffering mm -hmm. greatly because of our foreign policy. Now, how do you feel so. about Hamas generally? Are they are they doing good work, bad work? Or are they Hamas is does not have a whole lot of power yeah. um, in in the area, even contrary to what you hear on the news here. Right. Um, their military capabilities are primitive compared to Israel. Right. Uh, they Every Gazan I speak with, say they say I'm not Fatah, I am not Hamas, I'm a person. I want freedom. I'm a yeah. person like you. You know, I'm I'm not I'm not certainly not condoning Hamas or whitewashing Hamas, but they're they're not they're kind of inconsequential for the yeah. most part. But they're a convenient there. excuse to mm -hmm. cut off electricity or water or to refuse to dialogue. Exactly. Yeah. And the, the fact remains, October 3rd of last year, they gave unconditional con, um, power to Fatah and nothing changed for Gazans. They still get two to three hours of electricity, no freedom of movement, people mm -hmm. are starving. And then uh, Tr President Trump recently cut off the majority of aid to UNRWA, United Nations uh, what is it, Relief Works Agency. Um, because of their declaration just of because the unavoidability of, of Gaza? No, because he just didn't want to give money to UNRWA. Well, 80% mm -hmm. of Gazans rely on UNRWA to avoid starvation. Yeah. So, and what, well, I, I mean, what, what's, what's, what's filling that void? Is there... Is there any uh, enough help from other countries? No, there is or? not enough help so, from other countries. So Some I mean, countries have stepped up and pledged money to UNRWA. I've started a fundraising page on UNRWA to raise money. Are you able to get supplies and money into Gaza because of the... the the, uh, it's easier to no it's very difficult to do yeah. that it's easier to go to UNRWA and donate to UNRWA to um, for example $50 a $50 donation to UNRWA will feed a um, Palestinian a family in Gaza for about two weeks mm. yeah wow you know, I, and I, your your donation is tax deductible because it's to UNRWA. Right. Okay. So no, I'm, I'm very very empathetic with the uh, Israeli uh, situation historically I mean they've They've been treated badly for millennia, you know, at least two thousand years. You and, mean uh, Jews? Yeah. Right. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And and uh, because yeah. there's a difference sure, between yes. Zionism and Judaism. Yes. But I. So. But, but I, I. You know. It. It. it it's. And I understand the history. Why. Why Israel. Why. Why Jews ended up back in Israel and ended up, you know, with a mm -hmm. with a state. And I, I'm fine with that. But there got to be. There's got to be so many different ways that you could craft a, a solution for coexistence. Oh, certainly. You know, and, yeah. And and for for. For a people that have been persecuted so badly, not to—I mean, for some of them—not to be bothered by persecution of another people so badly is 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 hard to fathom. It it's is hard, hard to fathom. To fathom. Yeah. It is hard to fathom. So. 
But also, nothing will change until the very first um, injustice is actually recognized, and that is people were forced from their land yeah. and homes and everything and not allowed back. And I'm not... I'm just saying that needs to be recognized before any movement. There's so many um, intersections and and parallels between the Palestinians and their fight for um, rights, basic human rights, and, you know, the civil rights movement Mm. of our country. Yeah, yeah. Well... Uh, anyway, it's, um, I think conversations like this are important to get people aware of uh, what's going on mm-hmm. and uh, to understand the importance of dialogue. And again, we have uh, in Des Moines, uh, and this is a, where's this uh, gentleman from again? Well, he is from Israel. He grew up in okay. Jerusalem, but he currently, I believe, lives in San Diego. Okay. And his name again, the Miko Pellet. And he'll be in Des Moines on April 12th. Mm-hmm. Okay. Great. And. Uh, yeah, folks. Um, thank you for uh, listening, and thank you for uh, for thank sharing. Thank you for with having us. me. Yeah, it's a, it's a yeah. tough conversation, and um, it is. But if we come from a place of love for everybody, yeah. I believe we can accomplish and, great and things. I, and I and I I wish you know I, maybe I should invite the head of the Jamo- Des Moines Jewish Federation on the show, just with me. Maybe he'll yeah, come on then. But because uh, I nobody's ever accused me of uh, being a stooge for Hamas. So right, no, <laughs> I'm not. Yeah, and you're clearly I'm not. not. So I'm for human rights and for yeah. human rights of everybody. I think, you, I think your track group, record so. uh, on this crisis and beyond make that pretty clear. So. Well, thank you, Ed. Yeah. All right. Thanks. Uh, Maria Philippone, folks, joining us in the studio for this conversation. When we come back from a break, uh, Matt Olaf with Iowa Citizens for Community Improvement joining us to discuss the energy efficiency legislation uh, moving here in the Iowa legislature and um, not that different than a lot of um, states where we see similar efforts to roll back efficiency programs and to take a shot at the growing power of solar energy. We'll be back in a couple minutes on the Fallon Forum. Those icy fingers up and down my spine The same old witchcraft when your eyes meet mine That same old tingle that I feel inside And when that elevator starts its ride Then down and down I go Round and round I go Like a leaf that's caught in the tide I should stay away, but what can I do? I hear your name, and I'm aflame Aflame with such a burning desire That only a kiss can All right, later on the program, uh... Uh, Joseph Glaze, Joseph Glazebrook, sorry, going to join us to talk about uh, uh, Stormy Daniels. Uh, yeah, that'll be interesting. Right. And uh, <laughs> with me, I, Donald Trump, I mean, when you run out of material as a talk show host, you can always count on Trump to deliver. But we're going to talk about the uh, legislative level of government right now. And this is a bill that is uh, moving through the Iowa House and Senate uh, that has companion bills or similar legislation, um, you know, being offered around the country because we all know who really controls the state legislatures of the U.S. anymore. It's ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council. And I, I imagine this is an ALEC bill as well. I'm not sure. We don't know actually who wrote this bill. So just for a little context, what we're talking about is uh, Senate File 2311. 
and um, it's um, being called a lot of different things, the Energy Omnibus Bill, um, the Utilities Christmas List Bill, um, <laughs> what else, uh, Utilities Power Grab Bill. Um, we think that it was written by the power utilities here in Iowa um, to basically lock in their long-term profits and to um, prevent people from using uh, – um, from generating their own energy through local mm -hmm. renewable energy and through using less energy through energy efficiency. Um, those energy efficiency and local renewables like solar, um, they cut into the profits of utility companies. Utilities, um, Power utilities are in the business of generating and selling energy. Um, and what we're seeing right now is kind of this crossroads in our energy sector. So um, they, they, they don't want to see... Uh, us use less energy. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And they've been, uh, we've, we've, uh, there have been, there's been a, a law on the books for a long time now that requires utilities to uh, provide a certain amount of energy efficiency. Right. Uh, Since 1990. That, that, means, yeah. that means insulation. Right. It means uh, more high efficiency light bulbs. It right. means um, uh, you can get a rebate for a new furnace. Maybe a new water heater? Yep. I mean, All those things. Yeah. So since 1990, Iowa has had an energy efficiency program, which definitely requires the investor-owned utilities, which are MidAmerican and Alliant. There are other kinds of electric utilities, rural electric cooperatives, and municipal utilities like Ames. Um, they're not uh, required to have those same kinds of energy efficiency programs, but for the for-profit utilities like MidAmerican and Alliant, they've been required to have an energy efficiency program, provide um, in-home audits about how people could use less energy, and then mm -hmm. provide rebates for things like insulation. I had one of those audits years ago uh, in, a, in the big old house owned in the inner city of Des Moines, and mm -hmm. it was very helpful. Yeah. It saved us some money. Yep. And I can see why if their focus is strictly on profits, yeah, they would be against that. Right. And they would be against solar because solar probably has the best chance of any form of energy of being decentralized. Uh, just, you know, exactly. And, uh, and, and, and any, anytime, anytime somebody puts up a solar panel on their roof or in the yard or on their barn or on their hog confinement, uh, you know, you, you've, got, you've got the potential for the big power utility company to make less money. Right. Exactly. And that's just greed. Right. It it's, is. So there was there was a provision, actually. So the bill, um, how it's played out, it passed out of the full Senate um, last Tuesday night at around 11 p.m. So now it goes over <laughs> the to finest the... Finest hour. Yeah, exactly. Now it goes over to the House side. It was assigned to the House Commerce Committee, and it has to pass out of the House Commerce Committee by this Friday, or it doesn't pass this funnel date. So is, is there some... Uh, I imagine most Democrats are opposed to it? In the Senate, all uh, Democrats voted against it. Two Republicans in the Senate voted against it, and then uh, David Johnson, the Independent. Independent. Voted, so it was fairly close. It was 23 to 27. What, what do you yeah. What do you think its prospects are in the House? We're hoping to kill it um, this week. We, we're hoping it doesn't come out of the House Commerce Committee. Um, we're putting pressure on the House Commerce Committee. Um, we're actually I'm working with uh, several other organizations to hold a rally this Wednesday morning mm. uh, at 10 a.m. at the Capitol. Um, for those watching who are in the Des Moines area or want to uh, come out, um, the rally is going to be uh, at 10 a.m. at the Capitol. So if you could get there, meet us in the caf uh, Capitol cafeteria at about 9.45, and then we'll have the rally at 10 a.m. So what, what are the arguments uh, offered by the proponents of this bill? Why, why do they feel that uh, that reducing energy efficiency makes sense? What, what are they saying that, uh, that that could inspire you know lawmakers to want to support this? 
There has been really no logical argument so far. The Senate Republicans, the thing that they kind of took and ran with is that they see the energy efficiency program as a hidden tax that we're all paying on our utility bills. We are all paying into the energy efficiency mm -hmm. program, but their their argument was that um, we need to A, show how much everybody's paying into the energy efficiency program on their energy bill, and then B, um, we need to allow people, if they want to, to opt out of paying into that program. Huh. So the argument is that um, this, that's their argument, but that those policies would ultimately undermine and eliminate these programs. Mm -hmm. And we say that the, that the programs are working just fine. Ninety-seven percent of Iowans um, support energy efficiency programs. Ninety-seven. Yeah. No. Wow. Nobody's that's like the same percentage of scientists who tell us climate change exactly, is a problem. Exactly. Nobody's asking for these programs to be eliminated. This is all coming from the utilities. Yeah. Wow. And again, they've been these programs have been in effect for 28 years. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 28 years and yeah they pay just, for that they pay for themselves um yeah. for every dollar invested in energy efficiency two to three dollars um comes yeah. back in return but at, at a time when every climate statement out there every climate analysis every piece of research and evidence says we've got to reduce our carbon footprint we've got to reduce our energy consumption mm -hmm. this is um it's it's unconscionable that it they is. should think this is anything that uh that that they can feel good about. Right, exactly. You know? exactly. So let's uh, talk a little bit about the uh, the solar energy component of it mm -hmm. because we've seen we've seen tremendous growth in wind in Iowa and again who's controlling most of that? Well, it's the it's the investor owned utilities that are exactly. controlling most of the wind production. Right. So they have no trouble with that. Right. But um and we have other issues to talk about with mm -hmm. wind, but solar is more is more effective at being distributed where and again, I, interestingly, you're with Iowa Citizens for Community Improvement. Mm -hmm. And one of the other groups that have been that have been lobbying against the bill is the Iowa Pork Producers. Right. This may be the only time Iowa CCI and the Pork <laughs> Producers are on the same side. Right. But that's because um, confinements and other farm buildings. Right. And I know other I know plenty of farm buildings that that aren't confinements that have also been using solar energy. Right. And so, you know, you know and any time that happens, of course, that's an opportunity lost to the power company to provide power exactly. and make money. So, interestingly enough, in the Senate, when the, when the bill was being debated in the Senate, there were two bad provisions, actually, that were taken out of the, the bill in the Senate um, before it passed. One of those provisions was the, the bad solar provision. So, um, what the bill said before it passed out of the Senate was that um, rural electric cooperatives and municipal utilities would be allowed to discriminate against people who generate their own energy. So if you put a solar panel on your roof, um, your utility, if you're in an REC or a, a municipal utility, could, for instance, impose a $100 a month connection fee to you because you have a solar panel. That would then make the solar uneconomical and wouldn't make sense to put up a solar panel. That portion to uh, allow these utilities to discriminate against people who have solar panels, that was removed. And we would argue that um, that was probably because of pressure from the pork producers. Yeah. Um, like <clears throat> you said, the factory farm industry um, is the largest industry in the state of Iowa taking advantage of solar. Um, and that is because um, we would say that our solar policies should be 
um, should be able to benefit all people. Mm -hmm. The solar policy that we have in the state of Iowa, it's better than nothing, but it's not ideal. It's a solar tax credit, and it only allows people who are able to make that upfront investment that have the financing um, to be able to purchase solar. And the factory farm industry has a ton of financial backing, and they're able to make that upfront investment. And also, is there any attempt to, I mean, one of the the battlegrounds in, in solar has been over what's called net metering, your ability to sell extra power. If you've got panels on your home, you're generating more electricity than you can use. Right. You get to sell that back to the grid so somebody else can take advantage of it. Right, exactly. And um, well, one way that the utility companies have tried to suppress that is by charging you one rate for what they sell you and paying you a much lower rate for exactly. what they buy back from you. Exactly. Is that affected at all in this bill? That is not, no. That's okay. not affected. It's already a problem. It already is. It's <laughs> yeah, a problem, it yeah. yeah. It's, it's not as good. It's not anywhere near it sh- where it should be. Yeah. 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 But still, despite this, the growth in solar energy is pretty encouraging. Exactly. And our argument is um, around both energy efficiency and renewables is we need to transition to 100% renewables and 100% energy efficiency that benefits all the people in Iowa. Mm. And how do we enact policies um, that are going to get us there that benefit all people? Uh, tax credits, sure, it's better than nothing, but we need a more robust energy uh, policy and program yeah. here in Iowa. Good. And again, and you've got an event coming up on Wednesday for those in central Iowa. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's at the state capitol, um, 11, uh, 10 a.m. Um, show there, be, be at the uh, Iowa Capitol cafeteria at about 9.45 a.m., and uh, we'll have the rally. Are you going to storm the governor's office? We might. No. <laughs> <laughs> Later in the show, we'll be talking about, um, uh, we'll be talking about uh, legal progress and challenges remaining on the marriage equality fight. And we'll also talk about the uh, pipeline company's legislation that, uh, well, they're doing stuff all over the country, but here in Iowa, uh, DAPL is trying to uh, hedge its bets by redefining itself as critical infrastructure. But in the studio with me now is uh, Joseph Glazebrook, an attorney here in Des Moines. Uh, and we're going to talk about Stormy Daniels. I hope you're comfortable with that. <laughs> I guess we have to be now. Yeah, right. You know, I've, I've, um, I've said all along that I think Donald Trump is, is going to be a one-term president and actually less than one term. And, I've, you know, the guy has so many – there are so many indiscretions, so many moral lapses, so many questionable activities. I've always thought Russia was going to bring him down. But maybe it's Stormy Daniels. I don't know. But, but you look at what's happening now and you wonder um, how – you know, where this, how this is going to play out? What, what do you think? Well, I agree with your original assessment that uh, he's got a lot of problems, Trump does. He's certainly the most corrupt president we've ever had. He's also uh, blatantly violating the Emoluments Clause on a daily basis. Which he's clause? Sub- the Emoluments Clause. That's the clause of the Constitution that prevents a, uh, a president from receiving a thing of value from a foreign oh, national. Okay. So the, the, uh, he gets income in his right, properties yeah. from many foreign nationals every single day, but but he chooses to retain that income. But that's beside the point. The point is that you know this Stormy Daniels thing is is yet another example of something that he's doing that not only uh, tests the boundaries of of good decision making, <laughs> but also. Uh, subjects the president to a serious national security uh, risk, which is basically he's subject to blackmail. Now, th- this scandal is very reminiscent of the Clinton Monica Lewinsky scandal. Um, Probably worse, pr- right? Well, yeah. it, c- it could it could be. Uh, Clinton never paid to silence anybody, um, yeah. but 
you know, the, the, the similarities are, are twofold. First, you have this concept that, this, you know, whether the sitting president can be sued. And the United States Supreme Court answered that in the Clinton era unanimously, uh, saying, yes, yes, you can proceed with your civil lawsuit against the president while he's the president. So Trump will have no uh, recourse in the courts to suspend the civil lawsuit that Stormy Daniels has filed against him. Um, so what we have is we have this active lawsuit, and the other uh, comparison, obviously, to the Clinton situation is that it's a, an individual claiming to have had an affair, and it puts the president in a sort of tough position of either admitting the affair and winning the lawsuit, uh, basically, or denying the affair and losing the lawsuit, and that would basically, uh, either way, you'd have a lot of uh, baggage that goes along with that. Now how how long will the, would the lawsuit take? Is it something that the Trump administration could drag out so long that it wouldn't be politically relevant? I mean, they could drag it out maybe a year, uh, maybe a year and a half. problem with doing that, Ed, I think, is that it does not make sense for this story to remain but, and, and the mere existence of a lawsuit will cause it to always be in the news. So I don't think right. it's good for the president if he tries to drag it out. I think he's best off trying to get rid of it now. And what, which level of the uh, of court is it going going to come before? Uh, well, that's a good question. The original case was filed in California. It'll probably stay in a district court there, although um, it, you know it c could go up the chain uh, depending on. Um, what happens at the lower level? I mean, it could get. I mean, this is the type of thing that could uh, find its way working through the federal court system eventually. Yeah. I mean, with Trump having stacked the Supreme Court in his favor, uh, well, not just Trump, but over the years, it's been stacked, uh, you know, very much in favor of a of a, of a con very conservative agenda. And although although this is um, there's nothing conservative about about messing around with a prostitute and then paying off somebody to to shut her up. And know? it wasn't a prostitute; it was an adult film star. Oh, sorry, sorry, an adult film star. Yes, there we go. Right. But uh, good point. But um, there's nothing conservative about that. In fact, it's pretty contrary to what most conservatives claim as part of their values. But you've got a court that tends to, you know, come down on the side of of folks like Donald Trump. So if it went to the Supreme Court. Could we see uh, an outcome that might rule in Trump's favor? Is that possible? I mean, anything's possible. I don't think it's going to get to the Supreme Court. The reason is there's not really any complicated legal issue in the case. It's not a uh, landmark case at all. It's a routine, mundane contract case that's dealing with law that's been decided for several hundred years in this country. Um, and so really the issue... I think is going to play out in the local court there in California, and I think it's going to be simply a question of whether, and, and for those who don't know all the details, basically during the campaign, this uh, adult film star, uh, the, the Trump campaign paid this person $130,000 so she wouldn't uh, reveal that she had this affair with uh, Trump. And, and that's pretty much fact, right? Yeah, that's, that's pretty uh, much fact. He's not disputing that. <laughs> She's alleging it in the petition. The lawyer signed off on it. So, I mean, that's pre pretty undisputed uh, fact. The president hasn't admitted it one way or the other, though. But that's what happened, and then the issue is whether she can get out of that through this litigation and tell her story, let's say, to a book publisher, to a news outlet. Um, and well, that's, the, one, that's one thing she might have in common with Trump. They want to make as much money as possible. That's true, but, you know, in her case... <laughs> Trump's lawyer paid $130,000 using a shell company to silence her, but 
the issue was whether Donald Trump had to sign that agreement. There was a space on the agreement for him to sign, and he did not sign. Actually, it was a. It's very complicated. There was a a space that said DD, which we all assume is a pseudonym for something that Donald Trump would have signed under. Um, but the company signed it, and his lawyer signed it on behalf of the company. And the arbitration clause in that agreement, uh, to add yet another layer, uh, <laughs> requ requires the, the is a clause that is enforceable only as to the president, not as to this corporation that was created. So if the president wants yeah. to rely on the arbitration process, he has to admit he's a party to that agreement, which means he admits the affair. He might win the lawsuit by doing that, by the way, but then he'd have to admit the affair. And how is that? I mean, let's let's move beyond the courts now and talk politics. Uh, at some point, I would think the U.S. House, despite being controlled by folks who like Donald Trump, would at some point see the political liability to themselves and say, okay, it's time for us to get involved and maybe move toward impeaching this guy. I don't think this issue will necessarily cause... I mean, look, the the House of Representatives has shown an incredible lack of spying already with regard to Donald Trump. The Congress almost unanimously passed sanctions against uh, Russia uh, for meddling in the election, and the Trump administration literally said, we're not going to enforce those. And then the Congress did nothing. Yeah. Time after time, the Congress has done nothing. I think the only way that we're going to see any action by Congress is if the Democrats retake Congress, to be really? honest with you. See, and, and I think... Um my, my 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 feeling is that um, that's the only way the Democrats retake Congress is 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 if these scandals continue to build enough uh, enough backlash that it, that 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 wave is irresistible. Yeah. Uh, and so Republicans know that too. And in order to fight against that, they've got to dump Trump. That's their only saving hope. I, that, that's I, I, my theory. I like that analysis. I think that analysis. That's what I used to tell people a year ago, half a year ago, um, that they would have to, at some point, uh, take a position against Trump uh, and separate themselves from his corruption. I think they've made a different calculation, to be quite candid. I think they've made the calculation that the the base of the Republican Party is so uh, lost in this mythology of Donald Trump that maybe 30% of the country or so, uh, maybe, maybe half of them are hardcore-based Trump supporters, that they can't afford to lose that amount of Republicans in order to win themselves. So they they think that the only path to victory is to keep as many Trump supporters as possible, uh, even if they're losing moderates in the suburbs. I think that's the calculation that many have made. Some haven't, obviously, yeah. Jeff Flake and Bob Corker and others. But how, how does that math add up? How do, you, how do you win with only the hardcore, diehard Trump base? That, I, that's what, that's less than 30% of the electorate. I think it adds up in safe congressional districts or even lean Republican districts in some places, I think it doesn't work out in swing districts. So I think they're going to lose a lot of seats. I think that if you look at the House map, I think the Democrats really have a good chance of taking the House. I think a lot of people are expecting that maybe almost to happen. The Senate's another a question, but, you know, in terms of the Stormy Daniels thing, I mean, let's just stick to that. I mean, I think that the Republicans have shown an incredible amount of hypocrisy on this issue. I mean, there was a pastor, uh, uh, you know, who, who called for the impeachment of Bill Clinton over the Monica Lewinsky situation, who's now saying, well, Trump gives us good judges, so we don't have to, <laughs> we don't have to enforce the same moral principles <laughs> right, against right. him. And that's, yeah. that's the scary part. We'll talk about judges probably in the next segment, but, um, you know, they, they, basically it's a quid pro quo. W you know, the, the run-of-the-mill Republican will say, I'll tolerate this corruption in exchange for getting my right-wing agenda passed, yeah. and that's what's going on. Well, folks, uh, when we come back from a, a short break, well, again, if you're listening on, 
on KDLF 1260 AM or 96.5 FM. We're wrapping up the program. The next couple segments will be uh, available on our podcast on our website. And if you're listening to our community-owned stations, yes, stay, stay tuned. We're going to talk about uh, marriage equality and the legal challenges, opportunities, and continued progress that's needed on that front. We'll also talk about a piece of legislation here in Iowa. Uh, again, comparable to a lot of things happening around the country, relevant to the Dakota Access Pipeline, legislation that both wants to criminalize peaceful, nonviolent protest and also wants to legitimize the Dakota Access Pipeline as part of Iowa's critical infrastructure. We'll talk about those things after the break here if you're listening on our community on station. Otherwise, thanks for tuning in to today's Fallon Forum. Thanks to our producer, Maddie Kane, and to Juan Rodriguez here at KDLF 96.5 FM in Des Moines. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum, and uh, let's continue our conversation about the courts. You know, I look at all the damage that President Trump has done to so many institutions and and spheres of our lives, but I can't think of one where there is one with more lasting damage than the courts. I mean, when you appoint a judge for life, uh, that's <laughs> that's a that's a lot of impact going forward, well beyond your time in office, probably well beyond your life as president. So. Um, I think about the progress that's been made in this country on marriage equality. Again, we had a, uh, you know, Iowa played a fairly significant role in that in 2009 with the uh, Supreme Court ruling, the unanimous Supreme Court ruling in favor of marriage equality. And all across the country, there's been, you know, that those dominoes keep falling and we keep seeing, you know, more and more um, uh, acceptance of equality. And yet we have a court, uh, court appointments and has been, the number of court appointments has been huge. And concern is that, well, they're going to, they're going to take steps to roll back marriage equality. Uh, and again, with me is, a, is a Joseph Glazebrook, an attorney here in Des Moines, and uh, someone who's been tracking that issue and the progress, or maybe you'd say the uh, degeneration within our court system uh, very closely. And uh, what, are you, what are your thoughts on that, Joseph? Well, Ed, I've got good news and bad news. The, the good news is that uh, because marriage equality has uh, moved so far and because the vast majority of Americans accept marriage equality, as the law of the land, I honestly don't think there's any real danger of sliding backwards on marriage equality, even with a conservative court. I think that if, uh, let's say, one of the current members of the United States Supreme Court were to leave and be replaced by a far-right conservative, I think if you had a, an issue where the court had to decide a marriage equality case again, which is unlikely that they'd even take it, but if they did take it, I honestly believe that Justice Roberts would side with the liberals uh, and uh, vote to uphold marriage equality. I'm not sure about uh, some of the others, but um, you know, I, I just think that it's uh, that issue is it, it, we're not going to go back. It would be so would, good news. Yeah, that's the good news. No, hit us with the bad news. All right, the bad news is that the court systems in general, both at at well at, at all federal levels, so at the district court, the uh, you know, Court of Appeals, the circuit courts around the country, and then the U.S. Supreme Court have all moved substantially to the right since Trump came into office. This is particularly concerning because we're one vote away on the U.S. Supreme Court from most on most issues like that you care about. So even though I think that the court has moved past its desire to consider marriage equality, other issues that come up, I think the conservatives will continue to have a better shot at winning a lot of those cases. Uh, for example, 
we have this whole line of cases from starting with this Hobby Lobby case that basically hold that somebody with a uh, sincere religious belief might be exempt from having to follow a civil rights law that requires a business to provide services to people, uh, notwithstanding the uh, race or gender or sexual orientation of the customer. So that a bakery would not have to, not be required to, could deny a gay couple a wedding cake, for example. Exactly. Like most states in this country now, including Iowa, and uh, more and more at the federal level we have administrative law interpreting it this way, uh, there are civil rights protections for LGBT people. There are laws that say if you're going to open a business up to the public, you can't deny people on the basis of uh, race, gender, religion, and in this case, uh, s- sexual orientation. And so, yeah, the U.S. Supreme Court has really chipped away at that mm-hmm. by saying that, hey, if you have a religious belief that, that you know, and it doesn't, you don't even have to, you know, it could be anything. It could be some made-up religion that somebody comes up with just so they can discriminate against LGBT people. And yet at the same time, you have the, uh, the, the, the Republicans, Republicans in the Iowa legislature supporting a bill requiring a business to carry, uh, you know, carry industrial-produced eggs. This is a slap back at the uh, folks who are now moving toward K-tree eggs. And so, so it just seems very contradictory to me to have mm-hmm. this, um, this, uh, this opinion about whether a business should be able to discriminate and yet requiring a business to do something else that basically discriminates. Yeah, I mean, uh, mm-hmm. I think, you know, the, the mindset there is, and, and these are coming from two different places, keep in mind that sure. the judges are dealing with the civil rights issues in um, uh, these cases, whereas the legislature is dealing with the egg thing. But I think right. the mindset in general on the right is let businesses do anything they want uh, except when it comes to, uh, uh, you know, letting um, uh, regulations that help people or promote uh, safety. So they, they have this very laissez-faire attitude about business, and it's really destructive. Um, you know, that's what we had in the 50s when we had segregated businesses. Uh, you know, a laissez-faire libertarian viewpoint would be, hey, let the market decide. Uh, but I think that most people would agree that we do need some, uh, you know, regulation of, of business to make sure that people don't get uh, treated poorly, for yeah. lack of a better uh, term. So, and, and again, yeah, you're, you're seeing attacks on both the legislative and, and, uh, and judicial fronts. But back to the, uh, the courts for a second. The, um, am I right that the uh, courts have seen that uh, in, the, in the Trump administration we've seen more appointments than in the entire eight years that Obama was in office? I mean, somewhat that's correct. The, what's, what is correct to say is that the Republicans in the Senate have allowed more judges to go through in the last uh, you know, year and a half than they did during the period in which they were in power right. in the Obama administration. Okay. So, uh, and that's Mitch McConnell, and, and he, you know, they changed the rules a while back to require only 50 votes now. So he's passing these slim majority uh, you know, approvals of these judges that Trump is nominating. He gets his, his judges from a, a far-right uh, list. It's not his own people. It's, it's this far-right-wing uh, ideological list that he, he p- pulls them off of. And they've put a lot of really uh, powerful judges in places with really right-wing viewpoints on a lot of issues, including that'll be unions. A, that'll be around for decades. That'll be around for their life on the Supreme Court and the federal courts. Uh, yes. So they will be around for a long, long time. And that's why it's very important that hopefully the Democrats uh, 
have a chance of uh, at least tying the Senate, maybe even taking it, but probably hopefully tying it. And, and you know, the, the court appointments never used to be such a partisan thing. They didn't. Yeah. Scalia was confirmed with, I think, 92 votes or 96 votes. Ginsburg similarly was confirmed with something in the 90s. The only judge in recent memory until the last, you know, 10 or 15 years. Clarence who, Thomas. Clarence Thomas yeah. had 52 votes. Yeah. So he was the only one that was controversial until... Uh, I believe. Bork? Uh, well, Bork, of course, got, didn't even take a vote because he, right, he had to right. withdraw. But, you know, so in more recent time, we, we get these uh, 55, 60 vote thresholds. Uh, I think uh, Gorsuch was 52. So, yeah. you know, it's pretty it's gotten really intense. And everybody understands yeah. that judges are issue deciders these days. They're not really, you know, neutral yeah. rule Well, more we could talk a lot about this. So uh, we've been uh, speaking with Joseph Glazebrook, an attorney here in Des Moines, with uh, Glazebrook Mo, Glazebrook and Hurd. Hurd, thank you, Glazebrook and Hurd. Okay, got it right. And uh, thanks again for joining us. And when we come back, folks, we'll talk about a bill that Dakota Access Pipeline Company wants badly. All over the country, people are continuing to fight against oil and gas pipelines in Louisiana. The uh, Bayou Bridge pipeline fight has gained national significance as the Lo et la Vie camp sets up and as people find um, uh, some help, some hope, at least briefly, uh, in the courts. But here in Iowa, the, um, the Dakota Access pipeline battle remains in the courts. There is a court case filed by landowners and uh, the Sierra Club that now probably won't come up until September. Uh, and, of course, every day that the... Uh, case is delayed. The uh, pipeline company gets to continue to run oil. But um, what's happening is uh, the most important front right now is the legislature where the uh, a bill introduced by the pipeline company. And they'll, they'll deny this. They'll say, well, it was a Homeland Security bill. But it's really clear that Homeland Security has been acting on behalf of the pipeline company. That's, that's not disputable. That's been documented by memos that were released. So, um, what they want to do, what DAPA wants to do, what Dakota Access and Energy Transfer Partners want to do is to legitimize the pipeline as part of our critical infrastructure network. That's the most important thing this bill does. It's been referred to as a sabotage bill, as a critical infrastructure bill, but the, really the, the, the most important thing it does is to try to classify the pipeline as legitimate in order to help influence the Supreme Court decision and, generally speaking, in order to make it clear that in the future, if they want an oil pipeline, there should be no pushback against the question as to, as to whether or not it's a public or a private purpose. But hey, you know, when, your water, when the water pipe breaks, you know it. When the gas line stops, you know, pumping gas, uh, you know it. When your electricity is out, there's an immediate response. If oil was to stop running through Iowa, and again, it's running through here, we're not using it, if, you know, you wouldn't notice. You wouldn't notice for a day, a week, a month, a year. You'd notice when it spills, when it contaminates our water. But you won't notice if it stops running because it's not critical. It's critical to the profit margin of energy transfer partners as it flows on its way down to the Gulf of Mexico. But so this bill tries to change that by putting it in the same category as water, gas, electricity, other critical services. The bill also tries to criminalize peaceful, nonviolent protests by by assigning penalties of 25 years in prison or up to $100,000. I mean, it's, it's crazy. And that's the part that everybody's kind of focused on. And it's good that people are focused on that because that needs to, that needs to be fought as well. 
But I don't want people to lose sight of the fact that the, the main impact this bill is going to have is on legitimizing the pipeline as critical infrastructure. In other words, as truly a part of the uh, public utility network. And it's not. So right now, we'll see what happens. There's a whole, there's a whole, lot, whole lot of people have uh, been writing. Their legislators have signed on against this bill. We'll see where it goes. It's an open question right now. That's my style. How'd he do?